I don't know about you, but boy, I was blessed by the ministry of the youth this morning as they led our worship, and I just want to personally thank each and every one of them for working so hard to come and lead us to the throne of grace, and uh, appreciate that so much. And if you see them walking in the halls, go up to them and thank them for their service. It's not easy, and uh, we appreciate that so much. You know, about 400 years ago, God ignited the hearts of four men to lead a great and tremendous revival in the church of God. Now, for some of us, the names may not be so familiar. They're not uh, famous movie stars, per se. <laughs> They're not media personalities. But they went by the names of Melanchthon, Calvin, Swingley, and Luther. And so what happened was God used these men in such a way that they carried the torch of spiritual revival all over Europe, defining and leading the great Protestant Reformation. And it was a grand time. It was a time that was never, has, has never been seen before as God's people were coming back to him. Now, this great movement put the Bible into the hands and language of the people, sparking an unparalleled spiritual revival and turning to God. Now, when we talk about spiritual revivals, what are we talking about here? You know, uh, some of us would probably have to say, if, if they, someone asked us to raise our hands, have we ever been part of a spiritual revival? Some of us would put, well, I'm not sure, all right? What is it? Well, if you boil it down to its most primitive, most basic uh, meanings, it is really a, t- a time of great repentance and renewed devotion to God. Those are the two things that happen. This tremendous sensitivity to sin, and then there's this great turning to God, turning away from sin and turning to God and dedicating oneself to the Lord. And we see this happen again later uh, in church history. And this happened, uh, the great spiritual revivals under such godly men as John Knox in Scotland, John and Charles Wesley in England. And again, there was this great outpouring of, of repentance and renewal of devotion to God. And so this is what marked uh, these great movements. Well, how, you ever thought, how did these revivals start? How did these spiritual revivals start? Uh, what, uh, what key elements played a major role in them? Can it ever happen again? Can God's people be revived today? Or is this just something of the past? You know, something that happened in the past, never to happen again. And so, again, we have to go back to God's word and we have to see what God's word has to say about that. So, we'll address you, uh, we point you back to our study in the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7 is where we will start today. Now, We've been going back uh, to, uh, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, and so maybe it's worth catching up a little bit then and now. And so we've been going through the book, and, you know, and we see God uh, 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 teaching us lessons, spiritual truths and lessons for life and for living. Now, in the first six chapters, we saw God working through Nehemiah to physically rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And this is significant because the people of God had just come out out of captivity. They were kind of a loose band of people. They really didn't know much about themselves. They couldn't uh, really have any kind of connection uh, to God. And so, but they nevertheless had a tremendous need. And that was to be uh, protected and provided for. And so the wall would go a long way to doing that. Now, as we move on to uh, the next uh, few chapters, chapter 7, on through the end of the last chapter, we will see God working through Nehemiah to spiritually rebuild the people of God, rebuild the uh, people of God. 
It's no accident that God started first by meeting the physical needs of the people, and then he moved on to the spiritual needs of the people. And so, in many ways, that's sort of like us in any time, in any culture. When people are so focused on meeting their physical needs, they have no time to think about their spiritual needs, per se. And so, what happens, God says... It'll come in. I'm going to take care of this part so that you can start really thinking about the really important part, which is the spiritual. And so we see in chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, Nehemiah's top priority was providing security, providing security. The walls were up, but the job wasn't quite complete. And so he had to continue in this effort of building security. So look at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now, when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Nehemiah didn't just put anybody in charge. He didn't just put anybody into this task, but he chose people very specifically because they feared God and they were uh, faithful people and they were capable people. And so he put them in charge of the security for the for the uh, city of Jerusalem. And then secondly, in verses three to four, he puts in rules and regulations to govern the movements in and out of the city. Look at verse three. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot and while they are standing guard. Let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. And so he took another step and he made sure that um, there were rules and regulations that allowed people in and out at certain hours so that that would increase security for the country. Uh, so for the people, then if you look at verse chapter seven, verses five through seventy three, which we can't read all of it, you find that Nia's priority was to take a census of the people. Look at verse five. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. And then verse 6 on through 73 records what he found in the book once the census was completed. Now, why would Nehemiah ask people to come in and cover the genealogies. It was because he needed that information to see who was in the city, where did they come from, and so on and so forth. This would also help him for future planning in the, uh, of the city. But there was a much more important reason why he did this. It would give people a sense of national unity, something that they had been missing. Something they had been missing. They forgot where they came from, who they are, and how they are doing. And so what happened was in one ingenious stroke, Nehemiah began to reconnect people with their past. And this is such an important, important uh, part of this whole uh, spiritual revival that goes on. Because sometimes we as believers are the same way. We have forgotten where we had come from and what had happened. And so our faith kind of just drifts along. It just sort of floats along like a cloud, you see. And so what happens is that we we get become disconnected from our faith, our God, and then we end up just wandering around. So 
what can we learn from this? We can learn that it's good for us to, uh, to ask ourselves some important questions now and then. How is your walk with God now? It, it, is, an important, it is important for God's people to learn and ponder over uh, these issues. And so may I suggest to you that after you leave here today, maybe you sit down. All right. You sit down somewhere or maybe you even go to some place and you take a walk down memory lane. You take a walk down memory lane to, uh, to remember your spiritual journey with God. All right. Now, what might that look like for some of us here? All right. Perhaps for some of the senior members of GBC, maybe it would be a good idea to uh, go down to the area of the compound Salat. And maybe that's where your journey started with God in the houses and streets of Kampong Salat. And you remember those great times when you were out there in the streets. Life was a little bit simpler for you. And you remember the missionaries that came in and started gathering the children together and started telling Bible stories and just started having time together. And that's where you found Jesus Christ. Perhaps for others of us, it takes us back to uh, going to Sunday, a Sunday school class. It means going back to the time of a youth camp. Maybe perhaps it goes back to a time in a dorm room at a university. Or perhaps it maybe even takes us to a time when we were in a hospital bed somewhere. And it was someone who dared to come in and dared to care about us and dared to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's when we came to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. But as time goes on, perhaps our, our walk down memory lane might take us to a place where we remember the, uh, the blessing of faithful and sacrificial ministry of godly men and women who loved and nurtured us in our faith. Think back. Think back now. How many of you could say that you remember some person or persons who came into your life at just the right moment and they started pouring their life into you and you began to grow in your faith? They begin to share with you how God was active in your life and how much God loved you. Okay? Those kinds of things. You can remember people like that. Maybe perhaps your walk down memory lane will take you to, it may include the miraculous challenges of building a building for God. Okay? And you think and you remember, it says, how could God just use a handful of us? Just a handful of us. Barely scraping by. And yet God allowed us to gather the funds together and build this building that we are in now. You see? So I don't know where your journey will take you. But I think it's good that you go on that journey. And I think it goes back and try to remember who you are. Where you came from. And how is your, and your, where did your journey belong, uh, start with God? And where is it now? These are important questions to ask. It's a good idea to take stock of these matters. Both the provisions for, of security and the genealogy exercise helped prepare the people for spiritual revival. It helped to, support, to begin that. And maybe, maybe right now your journey starts with going back and remembering the day you accepted Christ and how you have grown to the point where you are now. Well, let's get into this a little bit further. If you go further, we jump now into chapter 8, into chapter 8. Boy, we covered chapter 7 pretty fast. Now we're in chapter 8. And in the, in the first 18 verses of chapter 8, what we discover is the role of three, three things happened that were keys, elements in the whole business of spiritual revival. All right? What were those three things that happened? First of all, in verses 1 to 6, there was the proclamation of God's word. The proclamation of God's word. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in the front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Now, you got the point that the word of God was brought forth and was beginning to read. What you might not have noticed was those very few words in the last sentence of verse 2. And it says, on the first day of the seventh month. Okay? Now, why would that be important? Okay, why would that be important? Because the first day of the seventh month marked that it had been 100 years since the word of God had been read publicly before God's people. A hundred years, one century. And you say, my goodness, that's an awful long time. Think of how many generations had never heard the word of God. But that's why it's such a special time. It was also a special time for God's people because it started the the, the season of three great Jewish feasts. Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles, or booze. And so, at this time, these was when uh, the, the holidays, these feasts, were marked out in God by God for God's people on their calendars so that they would remember certain major events when God uh, came into their lives and God acted on their behalf. And so this was a very special time. And so maybe some of the people heard it for the f- first time and they said, oh, I, I don't understand this. I, I, you know, please tell me more. OK, but there was this pro- uh, proclamation of God's word. Well, what happened when God's people and God's word got together? Well, look at verses 3 and 6. For 3 to 6, okay? And this, and it says this. <clears throat> then I said to them, do not let the... Oops, verse, um, chapter 8. He was, he was in front of the... He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from the early morning until midday in the... In the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood, and there's many Hebrew names, and I made such a mess of them in the first service, I'm not even going to try in this service. There were some on his right hand, and there were some on his left hand. And you can read their names. Okay. And so, in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Look at verse 6. Then Ezra blessed, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, did you notice? Did you catch what happened here? God's people... Were confronted with God's word. And what happened? Verse 3, they were attentive. They were attentive. You know, I think if I was back and if I put myself in the sandals of Ezra, I would be most overjoyed to see people attentive to the reading of the word of God. People just hanging on every word, wanting to hear the next word that came out. You know, all attention. And then in verses 4 to 5, the people were respectful. The people stood up. You see, this was a sign of respect. It's sort of like when an important person comes into a room. What do you do? You sit there with your feet on the on the desk. You know, what do you do? You stand up out of a sign of respect. And then the people were worshipful. Verse six, they bowed down and worshipped. 
Now, that must have been one sight to see that happen, to see the people give such respect and such worship and such reverence to the word of God. Somehow it struck them, even though, even though many had not heard it for 100 years. Several generations had not heard it. That's what's the amazing thing. There is, when there is revival, there's proclamation of the word of God. The word of God plays a major role. It plays a prominent role in it. Why does the word of God play such a prominent role? Because of its very nature. Of its very nature. For example, Psalms 119.93 tells us, I will never forget thy precepts, for by them thou hast revived me. By its very nature, God can revive us. By its very nature, God's word is powerful. If you look at the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Four, verse 12, and it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to, inju- to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, sometimes I just feel like the best thing I could do is just read the word of God and sit down. <laughs> Because the word of God just has a way of penetrating us if we are listening carefully. And it's that powerful. The word of God is also precious among other things. If you look at John chapter 5, John chapter 5 verse 24. It's precious because it reveals the way of eternal salvation. Look at John chapter 5 verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word. And believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The Bible has God's plan for salvation through Jesus Christ, you see. And that's what makes it so precious. That's what makes it so precious. You won't find the plan of salvation in other writings, okay? There are some writings that will purport to have the way of eternal salvation. But the only dependable one is the word of God. And that's what makes it special. It's also special because it reveals the provisions for spiritual life and maturity. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul was leaving his beloved church at Ephesus. He had to leave them something to hang on to. He had to leave them some memorable words. He had to leave them with some really good advice because he was coming off the scene. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, listen to what he says. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see? The word of God is special in every way by its own nature. And because of that, that's what God uses when he begins spiritual revival in the lives of people. The word of God needs to be reverenced and we need to return to its rightful place of prominence. The Bible is more than one of the greatest works of literature ever recorded in the history of mankind. It's more than that. It's more than that. 
And so we need to put the word of God back where it belongs in the order of prominence. Well, do people really feel that way about the word of God? I mean, really. Turn to the person next to you. Look at them. Do they really have that kind of reverence for the word of God? Okay. Now, I know you can't look in their heart, so don't make any quick judgments. All right. But can anybody really have this kind of thung, thun, uh, thirst and reverence for the word of God? Well, I went back and I looked and I found this quote by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church uh, movement. And this is what he had to say about the Bible. Okay, sit back, listen very carefully and read this. I'm a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit coming from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf. In a few months, hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. God himself has condescended to teach the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. You see, now you may not say it exactly the same way. I probably wouldn't. I, I, I can't write like that. Okay. But he expresses the feeling. He expresses the feeling of an awe for, and respect for God's word that says, give me that book. Give me the word of God. Today, is that how we feel? Is that how we feel towards the word of God? Or are we just clocking in time and so that we can go home, we can kick it off and tick it off on our calendars. We went to church this morning, you know, or do we say I was in the presence of the word of God? Give me that book. Maybe perhaps to put it another way. When we hear the word of God, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. How many of us don't raise your hand? How many in this room would say? Wow, I'd like to hear God speak. And he does through his word, you see. Spiritual revival starts when God's word is proclaimed. But then, you know, we, hurry, we, we, we go a little further into Nehemiah chapter 8. And what do we find there in Nehemiah chapter 8? What we find is that there's another thing that happened with God's word. There is... There is the exposition of God's word. Now, exposition is a fancy way of saying that there was the explanation of God's word. What does God's word mean? Okay, what does it mean? Um, oftentimes, when I was reading my Bible as a young believer, there's so many things I didn't understand. I, I didn't understand terms. I didn't, I didn't have a big vocabulary. I didn't understand concepts. I didn't understand how this connected with that and, and all these kinds of things. And I needed someone to come alongside me and please explain to me what does this mean. And that's exactly what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8, starting with verse 7. Verse 7. And it says this, also, and there's a whole bunch of Hebrew names again, and I, I don't want to disrespect the Hebrew language, so, and, and, and there's a bunch of names, and then the Levites, explain the law to the people while the people remained in their place, okay? Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the, read, the reading. Now, the word translate there 
is probably better translated in the New International Version of the Bible when it says, making it clear, making it clear. And so they not only read the word of God, but they made sure the people understood what they were reading. And this is tremendous. This was part of the uh, and heart and core of uh, the, the Reformation. And, and that pattern has been followed down through generations. Not only the proclamation or reading of the word, but explanation so all can understand and benefit from the word of God. And then further on, then when, uh, then when everyone can understand what we hope that they will do, is they will know what it meant in the past, what it means now, and what it means to everyone in the future. That is the heartbeat of what us pastors and teachers of the word of God try to do. Okay, we're not sitting up here just trying to flap our lips. We're not up here just standing before you and trying to impress you with how many syllables. You know, we can we can uh, pick words with many syllables. And it doesn't doesn't mean vowels and consonants. It doesn't mean have anything to do with that. But it's rather you would understand the word. It is a great thing when a great thirst for what God says is accompanied by a great thirst to understand it, you see. And that's what happens. This is what happened here back in Jerusalem. Let me give you a, a little bit of insight on how powerful this can be. Um, in seminary, I, I studied under a man named Howard Hendricks. And his name might be very familiar to you. And Howard Hendricks had a way of packing in one sentence really powerful words. He just had this knack for doing that. And so one of the things he said was this. He was addressing the seminary students in the place and at one of the chapel services. And he was talking about preaching the word of God. And you know what he said? He said this. Your task as a communicator is not to impress people, but to impact them. You see? And that's what the word of God can do when it is understood. When it's it's understood. Let me give you an example of this. Um, uh, Over 40 years ago, my wife and I were, were... Get this close to getting married, okay? So it was time to go in front of our pastor and to, you know, let him know of our decision and, you know, get him started on premarital counseling and all this kind of stuff. So uh, we, one night we went there, and, and so he, my pastor was so happy, and he just said, oh, so you two are getting married. And, you know, he had a big smile on his face, you know, and he was really happy for this. And he whoops out his big tablet and his pen, and he says, okay, what date should I block in, you know, and all that. Dead silence. Dead silence, you know. And, and he look, he's looking right at me, you know, what's the date of the wedding? My wife is kicking me under the table, you know, come on, come on. She thought maybe I had changed my mind, you know. And, and so finally I, I, I blurted out the date in July and I, and I said, and, and then the pastor was relieved, my wife was really relieved, and my body was feeling a whole lot better. And so what happened was, so we got into it. And then he said, okay, we're going to have to talk about the role of the husband. What does the Bible teach about the role of a husband? And, you know, I had come from a large family, family of nine children. I was the last of nine children. So I had seen my parents live, you know, quite a long time. And so I thought I knew everything about being a husband. Okay. But what I didn't know was how to be a Christian husband. You see. So over the next few months, our pastor would take us through paramarital counseling, and he'd go in, and he'd show me what the role of a Christian husband would be. And my eyes just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I said, wow, 
I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church and, and on and on and on and on. And it's, you know, but the beauty of it was that our pastor, he not only read the word of God, he explained the word of God. And he said, now, this word means this. Now, let me show you how this works, you know. And man, I tell you, it was a revolution in my life. And at the end of it all, and thankfully, just before we got married, <laughs> I finally understood better what it was to be a Christian husband. Okay? So the Word of God, when it is explained, can truly impact an individual, a generation. It can affect a church. It can affect a whole country. You see? Because when people hear the Word and they understand it, great impact can be made. And that's what can happen here. Spiritual revival starts when people begin to understand the word of God. Now, this just, just be, uh, there has, there's one more step that God put into this. And I'm so glad he did because it really kind of pulls the whole thing together. So look at verse 9 through 18, please. 9 through 18. Back in Nehemiah chapter 8. And what you see there is that there's the application of God's word. The application of God's word. In other words, obedience to God's word. Submission to God's word. It's not enough that you and I hear the word. It's not enough that we understand it. We must apply it. We must make it a part of our life. Okay? It's got to be seen. All right? It's got to be uh, acted out, if, it, if you will. And so let's see how this unfolds. If you look at verse 9, the people were mourning and weeping over their sins. Verse 9, then Nehemiah, who was a governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the and scribe, and the, the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Now, you might say at first, oh, they were just... They were just crying for joy. You know, they were tears of joy. But actually, in the Bible, when it uses the term mourning and weeping, it's more often associated with people being confronted by the word of God and their sin. And they are grieving and and weeping over their sin. So, for example, we find this kind of sorrow over sin demonstrated by King Josiah when he was uh, going through his revival, as it were. In 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 11 and 13, we read this. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Verse 13, go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the word of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. When people come face to face with the word of God and if they are truly serious and if they are truly wanting to know what God says, they can't help but be struck by their sinfulness. And that brings grief, that brings mourning, that brings weeping, the tearing of clothes, if you will. And that's what happened here. But then in verses 10 through 12, and uh, you find that the leadership was trying to tell the people, no, no, this is a, this is a special day of the Lord. The Lord has spoken to us, but 
But uh, look what happened in verse 10. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the, of the sweet and send portions of him to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be greed for the joy of the Lord is your strength, he says. Look at verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be greed. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. What, what did God's message have for them? Yes, God punishes sin, but he also blesses obedience. There is goodness of God and the forgiveness of God. This is what the people were beginning to hear. And so the leadership was saying to them, as you have been broken, now go and celebrate the forgiveness that you have from God. This is a time to celebrate that people went out and did that. But then they did something else, which was quite amazing. The people began practicing their faith in great earnest. In verse 13 through 18, in verse 13 through 18. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers, households of all the people and the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, that they might again, uh, they may, that they might gain insight into the words of the law, it says in verse 13. And so as they gathered together, what happened after that? They found written the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Verse 16. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and the square of the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from that captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily and the first day up to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Did you see that here? They took seriously what God said. So much so that they celebrated the Feast of Booths. Now, what's the Feast of Booths? The Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was a commemoration of what God did while God's people wandered in the wilderness. And when they wandered in the wilderness, they lived literally in houses made of branches and leaves. And so what happens here? God says, on this holiday, I want you all to remember that day. I want you to remember that event. I want you to go into your houses and I want you to live in booths. And so people would start building these little shanties, if you will. And they would take their meals there and they would be in there. What would that do? Suddenly that would awaken within them a sense of the journey that God, that they had been on with God. You see? And they begin to be connected again with God through this. But the point was they practiced the word of God. They practice the word of God. So when there is proclamation, there is exposition, there is application, 
the application must follow. Hearing and understanding the word of God should result in changes in our character and our conduct. James chapter 1 verse 22 says it this way. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You see, when there's no application of the word of God, all you have is a whole bunch of knowledge. (laughs) All you have is a whole bunch of facts and figures, but you don't have the faith, you see. And this is what the application does. It really puts the faith in action and it makes a difference. This is one of my favorite stories. I heard this many, many years ago, so it probably tells you how long I've been a Christian. But this story is told of a South Sea Islander who proudly displayed his Bible to a World War II American soldier. The soldier said proudly, like all Americans do, he said proudly, we've outgrown that sort of thing. To which the islander smiled and answered, it's a good thing we haven't outgrown the Bible. If it wasn't for this book, I would have eaten you by now. Okay, you get the point. You see, what happened is that when the word of God impacts people, it changes them and that they're able to do things that perhaps were never before even conceivable or dreamt of. You see, and the word of the application of the obedience to God's word can change any and all of us by making us more like Christ. And that's what God is trying to do after we accept him as our personal savior. If you turn to Act, I mean Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, God is in the process of making each and every one of us here in this room who know Jesus Christ as a share to be more like Jesus Christ. You see? And how does he do that? He does it through the word. He does it through the explanation of the word. And he does it through the application of the word. That's how it's connected together. So spiritual revival starts when people begin to seriously apply God's word. So... So, you've been sitting here politely looking at me, smiling. Some of you are nodding off. But what is it that we can do? We can do this. We, can, you, can you really, truly experience uh, spiritual revival? Yes. The answer is yes. If you will hear or read the Word of God, if you will understand what the Word of God is saying, and if you will obey and apply it. One way to put this is that revival is as close as the Bible in your hand. Revival starts there. Revival starts there. It doesn't take a full choir or a powerful preacher or a special invitation to be revived. They may help set the stage. They may help prepare the heart. But the main thing is the presence of the word of God, a clear understanding of what it means, and the total submission to it. That's the bottom line. At the end of the day, that's what it is. Okay? And so... Spiritual revivals is as close as happening into your life as the Bible in your hand. Read it, understand it, and apply it. That's where spiritual revival will start. That's when this church will be what God wants it to be. That's when you and I will be the kind of people who are devoted to the Lord. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, it's good that we are here together. It's good, O Lord, that we understand more clearly what it is that can happen to us if we will heed your word. Father, we confess before you, perhaps, we haven't taken your word as seriously as we should. We somehow have relegated it to a newspaper, maybe a magazine, maybe a journal, or something like that. But nowhere has it reached the prominence and the preeminence that you want it to have. And we pray, Father, that as we, your people, begin to take your word seriously, and as we begin to seek to understand what it has to say to us today and tomorrow, then, Father, our hearts will be revived. We pray, O Lord, that we will take your word and we will apply it every day to every situation of life so that so that we may be truly your people. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace rise for-